In the summer of 1990, a young man named Chris McCandles left his home in Virginia. He renamed himself Alexander Supertramp and began a two-year trek across the United States from Virginia to California to Mexico, uh, up to South Dakota, and finally north to Alaska, where he went to live in the wilderness by himself. If you've seen the movie Into the Wild or you've read the book, that's, that's, you might be familiar with his story. And the, the reason behind his, his journey away from his, his family and everyone he knew, and especially his journey into Alaska, it's, it's, it's a little complicated, but, but one thing is, is very clear. He wrote these words in his journal just before he went out into the Alaskan wilderness. He said this, ultimate freedom. Now comes the final and greatest adventure, no longer to be poisoned by civilization he flees and walks alone upon the land to become lost in the wild. McCandles was convinced that that society, civilization, was a, a corrupting poison, and to be truly free, he needed to return to nature. And tragically, a few months Later, he died in that wilderness, most likely from eating toxic seeds that he found while foraging. And his death was tragic. I don't mean to make any light of it, but there is a, a certain irony to it. That, that he, he called civilization a poison. Just as he was going off into nature, he said, civilization's a poison I need to be free of. And then he was poisoned by the very land he thought would give him freedom. He wanted to return to nature, and he found that nature itself is deadly. And I share that story because our passage today deals with a, a fundamental question that McCandles was, was wrestling with. If you, if you read the biography of his life, you see these are, these are things he's, he's wrestling with in his life, and it's certainly related to why he went into Alaska. And one of the fundamental questions is, what is... Our, is our fundamental problem what's around us? Is it society? Is it civilization? Is it our circumstances? Is it what's around us that is our fundamental problem? Or is it the case that the deadliest poison, our biggest problem, is found somewhere we may not expect? That's what we'll be looking at this morning. So our text today comes from the beginning of Matthew chapter 15, where Jesus has this, this debate with the Pharisees about defilement. And in this debate, we're going to see two problems that the Pharisees have. This will be our outline for this morning. The two problems the Pharisees have. First, they have authority upside down. And second, they have sin inside out. They have authority upside down and they have sin inside out. So let's go ahead and let's start looking at verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So this passage begins with the Pharisees and scribes showing up and confronting Jesus. Now, we've, we've seen them a couple times throughout Matthew's gospel. You, you might know these are the religious experts of the day. These are the, the teachers of first century Judaism. And notice, it says very clearly, these guys 
are from Jerusalem. So it's a big deal, right? These aren't just some, some any old Jewish teachers who are kind of hanging out in the area. These guys are from the capital city of Judaism. It's like if you meet a, a Catholic who lives in Rome, like a literal Roman Catholic, right? There's no like official authority there, but there's kind of this like extra clout they get. It's, it, there's this little, okay, whoa, a, a Roman Roman Catholic. That's that's a big deal. That's, that's what these guys are like. They've got this kind of extra bonus authority, and they come to Jesus. They come to this uh, backwater rabbi. And so we kind of have to see the scene that, that Matthew is setting for us here. These big city boys who know they're a big deal. I mean, they're the Pharisees. They know all the laws. They know everything that there is to know about the Old Testament. And they're from Jerusalem. So they're, I mean, these guys are, you know, they're a big deal. And they're here in, in nowhere Galilee to debate this upstart rabbi. I mean, what's the big deal, right? They know, they come in, they know they have the high ground. They've got the high ground here. And if there's anything the Star Wars prequels taught us, is if you have the high ground, you can't lose, right? You can't lose. You've got the high ground. So they've got some authority of their own and they come to Jesus, but they don't, they don't start talking to Jesus by appealing to their own authority. They actually go ahead and they kick things up an even higher notch. So they accuse Jesus' disciples of breaking the tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders. Now we need to understand what that means. So a tradition here, it, it doesn't quite mean just the way we've always done things. It's, it's kind of what we usually mean by tradition. It's kind of a capital T tradition. Uh, it is part of it, the, the kind of historical heritage element. Uh, the Pharisees were the, the theological conservatives of their day. They're trying to conserve, to preserve something here. But, but tradition here is a little more of a, a technical term. So Jared talked about this a few months ago. Uh, but their tradition, in their own words, and we have writings from Pharisees, rabbis, who describe the, the traditions as a, a fence around the law. It's a fence around the law. They're, they're zealous to avoid breaking God's commands, so they've created these extra rules, these extra fences around the commands, so that no one gets even close to breaking them. So it's like if, uh, if, I, if I said, you know, we had flooding in our old building, if I were to say, hey guys, no one go in the old building, it's dangerous, it's a you know, construction zone, so don't, don't go back there. And then uh, DJ sent an email, DJ, sorry, you're a Pharisee today. Uh, DJ sent an email that said, hey guys, since we can't go in the old building, let's just not go on church property at all. Just stay off the entire area here, just because we can't, we can't go in the old building and it's so important that we need, to, we need to set an even bigger rule, right? So that's what the Pharisees' traditions are. They're, they're these attempts to be overly safe. So just in case you, you accidentally do something wrong, we need to make sure you don't even get close to it. They're overkill commandments. And this specific tradition here is about hand washing. And again, this is different than we might expect. It's not about personal hygiene. This is about their ceremonial purity. So they're going back. There's Old Testament laws, primarily in Leviticus, about specific situations when you need to undergo this, this ritual cleansing, right? So if you touch a dead body or kind of a number of, of things that are listed out there, uh, if you do that, you, you can't participate in the worship life of Israel. You have to stay away because you're defiled, you're unclean, until you go through this process of cleansing. And so the traditions of the Pharisees are going 
one step beyond that. They're not saying, if you did this thing, you know, do the washing. They're saying, man, you don't know. You may have touched a dead body or something. We need to be really, really careful. So before every single meal, you know, wash your hands with soap and water, right? And they actually had these super detailed rules. It needs to be running water because non-running water is bad. And it needs to be all the way up to your elbow. It was this very kind of intense approach to the rules. And so that's, that's the background here. And the Pharisees are all up in arms because Jesus' disciples aren't doing that. And Jesus basically looks at them and says, cool tradition you've got there. Watch this, verse four, or verse three rather. And he answered them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? I mean, talk about a, a mic drop, <laughs> It's it's these big city Pharisees from Jerusalem who know their stuff and they're walking up to this, you know, they're they're all smug and strutting, walking up to Jesus. And Jesus says, you've broken the commandment of God. They're over conservatism, their traditions, the, the fences they have put around the law of God are in fact an assault on the law of God itself. And Jesus explains exactly how they're doing that. He he puts aside hand washing for a minute. He'll come back to it. But now he goes directly to the Ten Commandments. Verse 4. For God commanded, notice commandment of God, here's what God commanded. God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So there Jesus is quoting, again, the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment in particular, Exodus 20, verse 12, Honor your father and mother. And with it, he quotes Exodus 21, verse 17, which is basically the same commandment, but it includes the punishment for disobedience. It's punishable by death. It's a big deal. And and maybe, I mean, as we read that, we've been talking about hand washing. The Pharisees have this concern. Maybe this feels a little bit out of of left field. Like, what's going on? Why Why does Jesus jump to the Ten Commandments? And of all of them, why does he jump to the Fifth Commandment? Well, first, as we're about to see, uh, that's a commandment the Pharisees were breaking. So it's one that they needed to be corrected on. That much is is obvious. It's it's pretty simple. But also, I hope you've noticed everything in this passage so far is about authority. Everything we've come across is about authority. So the Pharisees from Jerusalem have authority. Authority. They appeal to the authority of the tradition of the elders and Jesus appeals to the higher authority, God, the word of God itself. And so the Pharisees, they have this mindset. They, they, they know they're the, you know the theological protectors of God's word, the theological conservatives. We're the authority guys. That's the Pharisees, right? Well, they know, we know how authority works. We appeal to the right authorities. We're the authority guys. We're not like those Sadducees, right? Those Sadducees believe something new every other month, right? We're not like them. We stick to our traditions, And Jesus is showing them authority is the exact thing you have wrong. You have it backwards. So to show them that, he chooses the commandment of the Ten Commandments, the one that deals with an authority structure at the most foundational level, that of parents and children. Honor your father and mother. So here's Jesus' strategy. He's going to show them If he he can prove they've failed authority 101, 
then there's no way they've graduated to the advanced class. Right? If, if they've got this wrong, then we don't have to believe them about all this other stuff either. And I think it's worth us just taking a moment to, to think about this. Jesus going to the fifth commandment because the, the relationship between a child and a parent is perhaps one of the most basic and common authority structures that exists in our world. And, and it is, however, a, a perpetually undervalued virtue. It's, it's abundantly clear throughout the scriptures, and yet it is something that is always undervalued. We think honor your father and mother is good advice. And Jesus points out it is a divine command that in the Old Testament was punishable by death. So kids in the room, if I, if I could just have your attention for a moment here, maybe look up from your coloring. This is one of the most important lessons you can learn while you're young. This is one of the most important lessons you can learn while you're young. God has put your parents in your life. And so honoring and obeying your parents is one of the main ways you honor and obey God. This is the structure God has put in his world that you, as the child of your parents, honor and obey God by honoring and obeying your parents. And, And God actually says in Ephesians 6 and elsewhere that your life will be good for you if you do that. See, our our world is constantly saying authority is a bad thing. Authority is evil. You should never have someone telling you what to do or what to believe or how to behave. Our our culture is suspicious of authority, but the Bible is clear. Authority is not a bad thing. It's it's a blessing to have someone in authority over, over you, especially if it's a good authority. And so God knew that, kids, and so God decided that the people who he would have an authority over your life, the primary influence over you, the one who's most in charge of you, would also be the people who love you the most. I think that shows us God's wisdom. God knows that those who love you the most will wield the authority in your life the best. And so, kids, it's not something that's just good advice. It's a matter of trusting God by honoring and obeying your parents. See, the Pharisees, they heard that commandment and they decided to look for a loophole. That's what we see in verse five. So Jesus points out to them, he says, but you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So there is a specific situation the Pharisees have kind of invented uh, that sounds more, a little uncharitable, but it, it is what's happened. Uh, they've invented a tradition for a fence around the law, but it's really just a loophole. So if a child comes to their parents, and it's, it's unclear here if this is an older child with aging parents or someone who's still in the home, it, it, it could potentially go either way. But if the child comes to their parents and says, I don't want to support you financially, I don't want to kind of be under your roof anymore or in your care, uh, if, if that's what the, the child decides, they're allowed to do that. They can say to their parent, I don't want to give you any of my money. I don't want to be uh, responsible in any way for your care. As long as, they can say that as long as they're using a very spiritual sounding excuse. So if you've got a really godly sounding excuse, you can do whatever you want. So the Pharisees say, as long as they give the money to God instead, whatever they would have given to help care for their parents, as long as they give that money to God instead, they don't need to honor their father and mother. They're just, you can just put that command aside. And it's, it's, it's really explicit. I mean, it's 
he need not honor his father at all. Just don't even worry about that commandment, as long as you're, you're giving money to God. So they start by saying, we're going to protect the law of God, and they end by saying, you don't need to obey the law at all. This would be like if I were to say to you, church, that, uh, you know what, you don't need to continue paying taxes. You don't need to continue, uh, you know, buying groceries for your family. You don't need to give money to the poor as long as whatever you would have given to those things, you put in that offering box right in the back. You'll be good to go. God, God likes that. That's great. Despite the fact that the Bible very clearly says you should do those three things. Romans 13, you need to pay your taxes. 2 Thessalonians 3, you need to provide for your family. James chapter 2, you need to be generous to the poor. So they're putting God's own commands in conflict with each other. They're using a very spiritual sounding excuse in order to sin boldly. That's the Pharisees here. And it shows they have authority upside down in the home. That's Jesus' point. The most basic level of authority, you get it wrong, Pharisees. You have authority upside down, but it doesn't just stop in the home. It's not just there that their problem is. It goes all the way to the top, verse 7. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 29 when Israel was about to go into exile. And Isaiah is pointing out to them that the the reason God is judging them and sending them into exile is not because they've been involved in some crazy pagan mania. It's because they have all the right doctrines on their lips. They have all the right truths coming from their mouths and their hearts are far from God. They are hypocrites. So their very worship was in vain. And Jesus is saying what Isaiah said to his context 800 years ago applies exactly the same to you guys, Pharisees. You worship God with your mouths and your heart is far from him. Have you ever noticed, church, how little time Jesus spends talking with the liberals of his day and how much more time he spends rebuking the conservatives of his day? I don't don't mean that in a a political sense. That's common misconception. I mean in a a theological sense, the the theological liberals and the theological conservatives. Uh, So so, uh, this is an oversimplification, but it's generally true. The Pharisees were the theological conservatives, right? They knew they were about the truth, They were, in their minds at least, the defenders of God's law. They were, you know, we're going to conserve, preserve the traditions. We are here to defend God's word. And then there were other groups like the Sadducees, who I mentioned earlier, who they didn't even believe in the afterlife. So there's, you know, it's kind of wishy-washy theology. They're They're not really engaging with God's word like the Pharisees are. And yet, Jesus spends a lot more time debating the Pharisees not because the liberals were right, but because the conservatives had no idea how blind they really were. It is possible to view yourself as the protector, the defender of truth and righteousness, and to have your heart far from God. And that, church, is the danger 
we are more likely to fall into. We, the Parkway Church, let's just call it what it is, we pride ourselves on being theological conservatives. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's good that we care deeply about what the Bible says. Denying biblical truth is not the side I want to be on. I, want to, I don't want us to be wishy-washy about what we believe. We are less likely then to fall into liberal drift and we are more likely to fall into hypocrisy. So I have two things that this, this debate with the Pharisees about authority, two things that it teaches us, Parkway Church, the, the 21st century theological conservatives, what does this teach us? Number one, blind conservatism is just as dangerous as wide-eyed liberalism. Again, I mean those in theological sense. Not, I'm not talking about politics. Blind conservatism is just as dangerous as wide-eyed liberalism. Should we worry about liberal drift in the church? Yes, it is a major problem. Feminism has wielded an unhealthy influence in many evangelical churches in our country. Theologically bankrupt pragmatism is a disease. Uh, unbiblical suspicions of authority, uh, denials of absolute truth, a devaluing of the family, a watered-down gospel, those are damnable errors we should run from, we should flee those lies, but if all we do is run the other way, we will still fall off a cliff. I've said this before, it's worth repeating. The road we must walk in Christ is straight and narrow, and the devil does not care which side he knocks us off. On the one side is falsehood, and then on the other side is hypocrisy. It's entirely possible for us to do what the Pharisees did, to be so zealous for truth that we undermine the very truths we think we're defending. Just choosing what, it, what feels like the most conservative option does not mean you are on the side of righteousness. Just, just trying to avoid you know, wokeism or postmodernism or whatever, whatever label you want to run from, just, just being against that does not mean you are on the side of the Bible. Blind conservatism is just as dangerous as wide-eyed liberalism. Which brings us to the second thing we need to see here. Theological mentors can be great heroes, they are horrible gods. Theological mentors can be great heroes, but they are horrible gods. The Pharisees loved the tradition of the elders. They were all about it. They said, we're the truth guys. We think this is great. Our, our elders, we're, we're no, we're, we know authority. We know how this works. We follow the traditions of our elders. I love church history. I think you all should too. I love my own theological mentors I've had in my life, my pastors throughout the years, some, some maybe well-known guys who I don't know personally but have had an influence on, influence on me, guys like Mark Dever and John Piper. I'm, I'm so thankful for them. There's a lot to be learned from listening to your mentors in the faith, whether dead or alive, but no man's words can ever stand above Scripture. We must always reevaluate, or not reevaluate, but listen to their words through the lens of the Bible. So, one of my theological heroes actually has modeled this well uh, for me. John Piper at a conference I was at a couple years ago. This was uh, 
a celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, Protestant Reformation. Great thing. We love that. Reformation's great, right? And Piper, in, in his, what do you call it, a plenary talk or whatever, uh, is, was unpacking Luther's essay, The Bondage of the Will, which is a great essay. You should read it. The Bondage of the Will. It's kind of Luther's uh, unpacking of, of the nature of sin. And he spent, Piper spent all this time, you know, reading through Luther, pointing out things, being very precise and clear, talking about how great it was and, and, and just being very careful and with, with, with Luther. And then if you, if you know John Piper, you won't be surprised by this. He kind of looks up, gets a wide look in his eyes, right? And just yells. <laughs> That's what Luther says, but who cares? I don't give a rip if it's not in the Bible. Which, again, that's John Piper. He's, a couple screws might be loose. Um, that's okay. We love him. But that's the attitude we should always have anytime you're, you're reading the words of a man. Right? Mentors are important, or, or not even reading, but listening, being, being molded by. These things are important. You should be shaped by your pastor, but you should be chiseled by the Bible. There is no substitute. There is no higher authority. God's word stands above all. That's what Jesus shows us here. He takes the Pharisees back to God's word. They got so wrapped up in being about authority that they actually had it all upside down. They had just fossilized their own traditions and they had disobeyed. They had made void the word of God. That was their first error. But it led to another deadly mistake. Not only did they have authority upside down, they had sin inside out. We see that right away in the next section, verse 10. And he, Jesus, called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. So here, the, the audience shifts, right? Jesus had been speaking to the Pharisees, and now he kind of turns to the, the crowds and he starts addressing them. And I think there are a couple reasons for that, but the main one is he knows this isn't just a Pharisee problem. It's not just the Pharisees who get this wrong. The whole crowd needs to hear what I'm about to say. They need to understand this. He says, what defiles you, what hinders your ability to worship God, ultimately, your sin, does not come from the outside. It comes from the inside. And in response to that groundbreaking an amazing theological statement, the disciples get all flustered about something that doesn't matter. Verse 12. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? I mean, can you believe it? The Pharisees are upset at what Jesus said. How, how terrible is the disciples are all flustered about it. The Pharisees are mad. It's actually, in, in Greek, it's really interesting. There's a, a kind of a, a double meaning there. So the, your ESV says, the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying. The Greek is, is literally, the Pharisees were offended when they heard the word. So he's saying, yeah, what, what, is, what is the word? It's what Jesus said. But what Jesus says is the capital W, word of God, right? So he, Matthew, I think it's just there, is just showing us something really cool. The Pharisees, Everyone's like, they're offended at Jesus. And Matthew's saying, they're really offended at God. Because when Jesus speaks, God speaks. That's where the Pharisees' hypocrisy has led them, to be offended at God himself. 
So disciples, in response to this situation, the Pharisees are upset. They want to know, what do we do? And Jesus' answer is, nothing. Nothing. Verse 13. He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. The disciples are all worked up because these big city Pharisees are mad at Jesus, and Jesus' answer is just, let them alone. Let them alone. Don't worry about it. Don't engage. Just let them alone. And he gives two reasons why they can do that. So first, he says, every plant my father has not planted will be rooted up. Every plant my father hasn't planted will be rooted up, which is probably, it seems, to be a reference to the parable of the weeds in, in Matthew chapter 13. So the parable of the weeds, right, it's this, this reminder that at the end of time, God will separate the wicked from the righteous. There's this, this separation. The, the righteous will be gathered into joy and the wicked will be taken into judgment. So there's this promise that, that one day everything and everyone will be finally unmasked. So stop worrying about it, is what Jesus is saying. Stop worrying about it. God will prove who is his in the end. And then the second reason Jesus gives is, is if, if the blind lead the blind, they all fall into a pit. So here, it's not just this, this end times eschatological uh, separation, but just this simple reality that if they're blind, their, their spiritual blindness will reveal itself in time. They'll fall into a pit. It looks, looks fine now, but if they're blind and they're walking around, there's going to be a hole they're going to miss and they're going to fall into it. So don't worry. Don't worry. Their errors will catch up with them. They'll fall into a pit because they're blind. So the disciples, in a word, they can let them alone because, very simply, God is in control. God is in control. They don't have to worry. I mean, it is scary, right? The, the big-name Pharisees, these authorities, don't like Jesus, don't like their teacher. But the reality is, if they, if they belong to the Father, they'll come around. And if they don't, don't worry about it. The truth will be made plain. In fact, we, we the reader, we know the end of this story. The Pharisees will continue to be offended by Jesus. In fact, they'll be so offended, one day they will put him to death. And God will be in control every step of the way. So the disciples can trust God. Whatever happens with this whole conflict, they can trust God. They need not fear man. They don't need to pour out their lives, you know, really grinding into things with the Pharisees. God is in control. And I think just as a note, that's a reminder to us too, church, that we don't have to play theological whack-a-mole ad nauseum. You know, you don't, like... like we should care about the truth. We should reject false doctrine. We should, we should be advocates of what the Bible says. But there is a point, as Jesus says in Matthew 7, when you don't throw your pearls before swine. When you say, I did my part, and I, I'm, I just tried to be faithful, and now I just step back and trust God. I don't have to do this ad nauseum. I don't have to, to spend my, pour my life on this, this one person who's obstinate I hold fast to the truth, I bear witness to the truth, but at a certain point, I can walk away and trust God. Verse 15. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. 
And he, Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? So we move on. And once again, Peter displays his ignorance. Thanks, Peter. He thinks Jesus told a parable. He's probably referring back to verse 11 because this is what they end up talking about. They get back to the the hand-washing defilement issue. And he's like, okay, there's a deeper meaning here. Jesus, you said what goes into the mouth defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, or it's not what goes into the mouth defiles someone, it's what comes out. There's a secret meaning here. I can feel it. Help me understand, right? He thinks it's a parable. And Jesus is like, it's exactly what I said. There's no secret here, Peter. It's, it's not that complicated. You don't have to like, it's not, there's no game to play here. Uh, and I think this is really funny. To deal with Peter's ignorance, he explains in the most literal way possible that things that go in you come out of you. Verse 17. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Peter, sorry, Jesus is giving Peter a lesson in gastroenterology. This is how the bowels work. He is spelling out what happens, why sometimes you need to go to the bathroom, Peter, in case you didn't know. And you may think there's nothing to learn here, but let me tell you, when I was translating this, I learned the Greek word for toilet. And that's not, I mean, that, that was worth it for me, right? So actually, you didn't need to know this, but it's for free. Uh, when he says expelled, the literal Greek there is cast into the toilet, I understand the ESV being like, we can't say that. That's, that's, that's a little much. So expelled, right? Peter was asking for it, though. He's, he's like, what's the secret, Jesus, right? And you know, be careful what you wish for. The, the, the point is simple, and I feel awkward having to explain it to you, but this is the way things work, right? My six-month-old had carrot puree on Friday. A couple hours later, it was all over his car seat, right? Things that go in come out, right? That's, that's the nature of how things work. I should... I'm going to keep going before I say something embarrassing. Verse 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So remember, the Pharisees made an assumption back in verse 2. They thought Jesus' disciples were doing something that made them ceremonially unclean, that they were defiled because they didn't wash their hands before eating. They thought of sin like it's this, this cloud around you, right? Like it, it's, it's, it's something kind of hanging in the world around you. It's, it's these problems in the air. It's a feature of your habitat. So your job is to avoid the cloud as much as possible. And if by chance you happen to get some of it on you, just, you know, soap and water, wash it right off. That's their view of sin. But Jesus, again, like with authority, says you have it exactly backwards. Sin is not this cloud around you. It is a well that springs from inside of you. It is a part of you. And to show that, Jesus goes back again to the Ten Commandments. We saw the fifth commandment already back in verse 4. Now, in verse 19, we get 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. But Jesus does something very clever here. He changes the order and he puts number 10 first. 
So look at this. Exodus chapter 20, the, the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet in the KJV, is the, the most internal command, right? It's the hardest for anyone to see. It, it, it only exists in your thought life. Coveting, right? It, it's this having selfish, wicked uh, Thoughts, sinful thoughts, wanting something that's not yours, but it begins in your thoughts. And so Jesus puts it here first. He says, out of the heart comes evil thoughts. And then he does the rest of the commandments in order. So murder, that's commandment six. Adultery or sexual morality, together, commandment seven. Theft, commandment eight. False witness and slander, together, commandment nine. So Jesus is pointing out that all those obvious, external, visible sins that, that you see and you want to avoid, they all come from the inside with evil thoughts. They all flow from a wicked heart. So he's saying, how foolish, how foolish to waste your time focusing on cleaning your hands. Your hands aren't the problem, your heart is. It's like, it's like trying to clean a landfill by picking up the litter in one town over. You're not even addressing the problem. You're not even in the neighborhood. And this is one of the most fundamental errors that we too make when it comes to sin. This is not a Pharisee mistake. It's not a Jewish mistake. It's not a liberal or conservative mistake. This is a human mistake. We think our biggest problems come from the outside in. It's, it's other people that are at fault. It's society that's to blame. It's TikTok or Instagram that's corrupting the next generation. Whatever it is, it's those other things out there. And make no mistake, those things I mentioned, they have a, a certain influence. They don't, they're not neutral. They, they wield an influence in our lives, but they are not the fundamental problem. It's easy to have this big amorphous enemy like society or social media, because then you can throw the blame somewhere else. But that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the human condition. Think about it like this. If you have a wolf and you put a salad and a steak in front of him. Which one is he going to eat? He will eat the steak 10 times out of 10. And would you blame the steak for making the wolf eat it? Of course not. He's doing it because it accords with his nature. His nature wants the steak, not the salad. He wants the steak because that's what he is. He is a wolf. It is in his nature. So the reason things like social media or society or other people can influence you towards sin, brothers and sisters, is because your own nature, your own heart loves it. When Chris McCandles walked into the Alaskan wilderness, he saw an outside problem. He said, civilization is a poison. That's a, a common view, actually, throughout history. He, in many ways, may not know this, but he was a disciple of, of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who's a French Enlightenment thinker who said, we're all born as these blank slates, and then society makes us evil. That's the problem. So the solution is to return to nature, whatever is natural. And that's what McCandles did. And he found that nature, too, is deadly. And there's something of a, a parable in his story for us, because that's how we think about sin. We think 
if it's, if it's natural, it must be good. Whatever desires flow from my own heart, they must be good. They're just revealing my nature, and we lack any kind of self-suspicion that maybe our nature is the problem. And we fail to realize that nature, too, is deadly, and that, in fact, the deadliest, the most, le- most lethal poison nature has to offer is not some toxic seeds in Alaska. It's the poison at the very center of the human heart. That's our problem. From such a heart flows murder, adultery, theft, and lies, and that poison exists in every heart outside of this room and every heart in it. So let me ask you this, church. When you get frustrated and angry with the craziness you see in the world, when you witness things like what Jesus talks about here, when you witness the promotion of sexual immorality in our culture, when you see the the reign of violence on the news, lies that dominate in society, when you see those things, do you feel the same holy hatred for the sin in your own heart? Out of your heart, Come evil thoughts. Sin is not just some problem out there. The well from which these things flow goes all the way down to your own soul. It's not wrong to be frustrated by the sin in the world around you. It's not evil to work against ungodly influences in our culture. But but don't put the stake in front of a wolf and then blame the stake. It's hypocrisy if we fail to confess the same appetite for sin you see all around you exists in your own heart. That's where the real problem is. And brothers and sisters, the absolute glory and wonder of the cross is that that is exactly the problem Jesus came to fix. Jesus did not die for something outside of you. Jesus did not die to give you a new set of circumstances. Jesus did not die so that society could be just kind of generally better. Jesus did not die for something around you. He died to make you new. That's what God promised all the way back in Ezekiel 36. This is his promise of what's coming. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what he promised and that's the work he has begun in Christ and the work he will one day that the return of our Lord bring to completion. God did not, Jesus did not die to give you a better set of circumstances. He did not die to make those around you a little nicer. He died for you, to make you new. He took the defilement in your heart and washed it clean with his blood. He's taking your appetite for sin and giving you an appetite for righteousness, something that that wasn't there, that that you didn't want, but by grace, he's giving it to you. And one day, with that same grace, he will finish the good work he began in you, and he will finally fix your biggest problem 
which is you. And he will make you totally new. And you'll stand before him and, and rejoice and feel no defilement and no sin and no fear and no anger. And you will know the great joy of his presence forever and ever. So, church, when you see a world lost in sin and darkness, say to yourself, but for the grace of God, that was me. That's exactly where I would be if God in his grace hadn't reached down and changed my heart and given me a love for him that I never had. But for the grace of God, that was me. I'm no different. I'm no better. God set his love on me in Christ. I was lost in the wilderness. And in Christ, I found freedom. May that mark us as a church, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would purge us of hypocrisy. Every heart in this room wants to look good, wants to appear like we have no problems. We got all our ducks in a row. We got everything together. God, I pray you would sanctify us and remind us that but for the grace of God, we have nothing. We're lost and broken and wicked. And yet you called and we came. Help us, God, to submit to you above all else, to delight in you more than anything, to know your son and to walk with him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.